Great fellowship. That we can do after service. <laughs> Before we begin, I noticed on Facebook uh, this last week that um, Ginger Presley posted this. So this is the warning that uh, we do not want it to happen during this service. I think Ginger and then Cheryl, I think, seconded that. So, an amen would be okay, Gatorade, not okay, all right? Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. We are continuing our study through the, a special study through the seven letters for the seven churches. And we are in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. We're looking at verses 12 through 17 this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Richard has a bunch in his hand, and they'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, Church of Pergamos. You guys got there pretty quick. All right, Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12, we read, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate." Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. The title of my study this morning is The Compromising Church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to be in this place, Lord, to have the sweet fellowship that we can have together with one another, Lord, but even more importantly, the fellowship that we can have with you, Lord, as we dig into your word, as we open our hearts to receive all that you have for us today. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. We thank you for this place you provided for us to gather, Lord. We praise you for this time, and we just pray, Lord, that we would have ears to receive all that you have for us today. And we also pray, Father, if there's anyone that has joined us this service or will join us next service that does not have a relationship with you, they don't have their sin forgiven, Lord, I pray that they would come to know you today. We commit our time to you, Lord. We ask that you would continue to anoint it. For it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The story I shared before, I like it, about a New York family who brought a ranch out west where they intended to raise cattle. Well, friends visited the ranch and asked, you know, where they had come up with their name. Well, said the would-be cattleman, I wanted to name it uh, the Bar J. My wife favored Susie Q. One son liked Flying W. And the other wanted the Lazy Y. So we're calling it the Bar J, Susie Q, Flying W, Lazy Y. But where are all your cattle? The friends asked. None survived the branding. That's what happens when you compromise. 
One man wrote, my wife and I always compromise. I admit I'm wrong, and she agree, agrees with me. Well, here in Revelation chapter 2, we, we look at this third church in our series of seven letters for seven churches. We find a church that's in a compromised state. Now, if you're taking notes, we have three familiar points. Number one, the commendation. Number two, the criticism. And number three, the correction. We also want to recall how these letters can be taken four ways historically. There were seven actual churches in Asia at the time that these letters were written. Practically, they teach us a lot about church life. It's all covered in the, the letters to the seven churches, the difficulties and the challenges we face as a church. Personally, they apply to us individually as believers. And then prophetically, each church represents a certain stage in church history, starting with the church of Ephesus, representing the early church to about 99 AD, then came to the church of Smyrna that we looked at last week, the persecuted church from 99 to about 312. And now this morning, the church of Pergamos, the compromised church from 312 to 600 A.D. Now, what's interesting is that when you look at the different names of these churches, they have different meanings to them, representing of the characteristic of each church. For example, Ephesus actually means darling. And so it represents a church in its infant state, starting with the apostles. Now, for them... Like many marriages today, that church slipped into a routine. They lost their passion for Christ. They left their first love. And you might say they were married to the ministry, but not married to the master. So Jesus told them, return to your first love. The second church was Smyrna, whose name means myrrh. We looked at last week that myrrh was the fragrance derived from crushing, and that represented the the suffering church. The period where Satan sought to crush the church through persecution. That lasted for three centuries, beginning with Nero in 65 A.D. and ending with Diocletian in 313 A.D. We noted that during that period, some six million Christians were martyred for their faith. It was Satan's attempt to stamp out the church through persecution. But what Satan didn't expect was that the persecution would only strengthen the church and purify the church and empower the church. So when that didn't work, Satan thought, okay, if you can't beat them, join them. And that's what we have this morning. That's represented by the Church of Pergamos, the Compromised Church. The name Pergamos comes from two Greek words. The Greek prefix per is seen in the words like, like pervert. It means opposition. The suffix uh, gamos, seen in words like monogamy or, or bigamy, means marriage. So Pergamos, that means objectionable marriage. Now what a fitting description, prophetically, of the next phase of church history. Now understand, Pergamos was uh, really the glamour spot of Asia. Located in in Pergamum, the the capital uh, city of Asia Minor, it was the Las Vegas of that time. It was known for its rampant idolatry, for its wickedness and sexual immorality. Yet despite all the glamour, Pergamos was a very religious center. Like most ancient, ancient centers, there was a high point, an acropolis, and the highest point of the city sat, you know, this 40-foot altar to the Greek god Zeus. So uh, if you were to stare up at the top of the city, this giant altar to Zeus looked like this huge architectural throne. Now that could be what Jesus is meaning here when he says in verse 13 that Pergamos is the place where Satan's throne is. It really was the, 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 the headquarters of satanic opposition and the, the Gentile base for all false religions. It was especially known as the center for the worship of the deity known as Asclepius. Asclepius was the god of medicine or healing. 
Now, he was represented by holding the staff with a serpent wrapped around it. Now, we see that today in the medical field as well. But because of this famous temple to the Roman god of, of healing, uh, uh, sick and diseased people from all over the Roman Empire flocked to Pergamos for relief. And so, according to William Barclay, catch this, when you went into the temple to be healed, you would crawl around in these dark corridors, and as you crawled through these, these holes in the walls, you would hear, you're getting better, you're getting better, you're getting better. It was kind of this mind over matter type of thing, and, and a positive confession, if you will. Now, if that didn't work, then once you reached the center of the temple, you would then spend the night on, the, on sleep on this cold stone floor, total pitch black, but then... They would let the snakes loose. Seriously, they would do this. Uh, the snakes—they were not poisonous, but I mean, it's pretty awful if you get about it. Uh, the the belief was that if the snake happened to crawl over you, it meant that Asclepius was having mercy on you to touch you and to heal you. Now, you know, I, I think if you weren't healed at that point, it didn't matter. You'd never want to put yourself through something like that again. But the point is. As we get into this letter, we certainly see Satan slithering around the church, seeking to touch believers, not for healing, but for deception and for compromise. And now as this letter unfolds, we will see that this church became married to the state, if you would, as a man named Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. See, prophetically, uh, by 312 AD, the last of the ten Roman emperors who had persecuted the church, they were dead, they were gone. And there was a strategic power struggle for the Roman Empire when this young man named Constantine prepared to engage in battle. According to legend, he saw a cross in the heavens and heard a voice that said, in this sign, conquer. And so thus you have the so-called conversion of Constantine. What really happened, though, was this. Substantially outnumbered, Constantine noticed that a large segment of the population were not enlisted in the army. And so, I mean, they were the Christians. And so his so-called conversion provided him with an infusion of new troops. And he wanted to to conquer this pivotal battle. And when he marched into Rome, he was held as the the undisputed emperor. As it turned out, Constantine conquered more than an opposing army. In a sense, he conquered the church. Now, we know that Jesus said the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. But but Constantine's so-called conversion led to certain reforms in the Roman Empire that had disastrous consequences for Christians. And again, that's because Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, he had an unusual way of of bringing people to faith in Christ, convert, convert to Christianity or die. Not much of a choice, you know. I mean, I can't imagine an altar call, you know. You know, if you want to Christ this morning, raise your hand. If you decide not to give your life to Christ, well, the ushers are going to come and kill you this morning. You know, that's what they had to face. And so the gospel was compromised. And, and the, go- the gospel is compromised when conversion is forced. In fact, Constantine killed many true believers who refused to submit to this distorted ban of Christianity. Listen, true Christianity was never meant to go out and conquer militarily in the name of the cross. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a place for self-defense. There is a place for a nation to use military force and law enforcement. But that is not what we're talking about here. See, we're talking about getting the gospel out into all the world. I like what Pastor Greg Laurie said. That's not to be done with M16s, but with John 3.16s. God doesn't want us to manipulate people into conversion. It's got to be a change of heart. It's got to be a work of faith that God does in that person's heart. 
Well, now this church was free from persecution from the outside. Now they're facing a more devastating enemy on the inside as compromise with the world crept into the church. And the influence of pagan, of the paganism in the church increased greatly. In fact, once Christianity became the official religion of Rome, all Roman babies at that time were legally required to be baptized into the Christian faith. And little by little, the church began to adopt pagan practices, and soon it shrouded itself in mystery and ritualism that strongly resembled ancient Babylon. Pagan priests and, and, and practices were integrated into the worship in the Christian church. The Chaldean uh, Tau, T-A-U, which was elevated on a large T on the end of a pole, was changed to the sign of the cross. This time, celibacy of priests and nuns were introduced during this age from, from roots in paganism. In fact, the road to compromise went something like this. 8,300 prayers for the dead began. 8,300 making the sign of the cross. 8,375 worship of saints and angels. 8,394 mass was first instituted. 8,431 the worship of Mary began. 8,500 priests began dressing differently than laymen. 8526, extreme unction, or, or praying for those about to die to assure their place in heaven was started. And 8593, the doctrine of purgatory was introduced. That when you die, you have to spend time in this place of suffering and torment until you pay for all your sins. And in just 300 short years, the church became more Roman and less Christian. That's why it's called the Roman Catholic Church. Now, we're going to look at more of the problems that went on during this time next week as we look at the church of Thyatira, and then we'll get to the church of Sardis, the Protestant church. So don't just think I'm, I'm jumping on the Catholics here. I mean, we'll get to the Protestants as well. Uh, but this brings us to point number one, the commendation. Look now at verse 12. So with that background, Jesus says, And to the angel of the church of Pergamos, right. Now, remember, the word angel is messenger. We think that it means, you know, uh, the pastor of the church. He says, these things, he says, to who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, I don't think that was so much of a commendation right there as it was a statement of fact. Jesus is saying here, hey, I am the one who has the power to destroy you with just one word. One word, you know, uh, I'm the one speaking to you right now. In fact, Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and discerner of the thoughts and the tents of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him of whom we must give account. It's a word of God. Jesus is speaking. And when the Lord wants to contact us, he's not going to do it by giving us some warm, cozy feeling all over. You know, He's going to do it through his word. He's going to speak to us through his word. If we need correction, it's going to be through his word. Commendation, it's through his word. In fact, Jesus said in John 17, 17, he prayed, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. See, because of this paganism and because of this compromise and false teaching that are brought into the church, Jesus is saying, it's the word of God that's going to get your mind where it needs to be. It's going to bring illumination. It's going to bring light to you. It's going to get you on the right path. Well, he continues on in verse 13. He says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So he's saying some great things about this church. I mean, they, they kept the faith. They kept his name, even when their leader, this man named Antipas, was martyred. He says, man, I'm proud of you guys, Jesus says. Now, this man, Antipas, 
not much is known about him other than what Jesus says here. His name means against all. Church tradition has that he was placed inside this brass bowl and, and roasted to death for his faith. He's called my faithful martyr. You know what the word martyr literally means? Uh, witness. That, that's what it really first started in, in, the, in the original transliteration. It means witness. But because so many witnesses uh, were faithful to Christ, were put to death, the definition of that word, martyr, became associated with one being put to death for their faith. So Antipas here is, is, is representing the millions of believers who, for, over the centuries, who would stand against all the man, the devil could muster on them and remain victorious in life and in death. Jesus is saying, good job. He did good. You know, which, and Jesus is complimenting this church on what it did well. It makes me wonder, what compliment would the Lord give our church today, you know? What compliment would the Lord give you or I today? Are you pleasing Him with your personal walk with the Lord? Are you being that faithful witness to the Lord? Are you pleasing Him in your attitudes and conversations? Because here, Jesus begins this letter by saying, I know where you live. Verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell. We can't hide from God. He knows where we live. Remember Christ said, I, you know, I, I'm among the seven lampstands. In other words, I'm among the church. You know, and I, and I certainly don't want to be removed. I want Christ's presence in my life. I want, to be with, uh, you know, I want Him to be with me in everything I say and do. And so he says, I know where you live. Now, this also means that, that God was aware that that non-Christians were surrounding his people there in Pergamos. It means that Jesus understood the pressures that they were facing to conform to the world and to the standards and the values of the world. It means he knows the pressures by the, by the world today coming against us and wanting us to conform to the standards and the values of our world. You know, I, I did research that, that some 114.4 million viewers Watch the Super Bowl last year, according to last year's statistics. 114.4 million. Now, did you know that the average cost for a 30-second commercial during the Super Bowl is 4.5 million dollars for a 30-second ad? So, 114.4 million people can watch a 30-second ad. It costs 4.5 million dollars. And what are the most popular ads? Commercials packed with sexual innuendos, beer commercials. Dorito commercials. Okay, I'm not saying Doritos are bad. <laughs> bad for you, maybe. <laughs> but my point is this. All the, almost all the commercials point towards gratifying our flesh and, and the fleshly desires. And it's what the world is all about. Man, you've got to have this car. You've got to eat this food. You've got to dress this way. Invest in this company. You'll make more money this way. And, and the Lord is saying, man, I know the hassles that you face. I know the influence that's in your life and I know where you live and I know it's not living easy living in the culture we live in. But that's why He gives us the power to live for Him and not be conformed to this world. I mean, if He tells us not to be conformed to this world, that means He gives us the power to do it. And that's what Romans 12, 2 tells us. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. This brings us to point number two, the criticism here the Lord says, I have a few things against you. He goes on in verse 14, he says, You have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. So Jesus brings up two problems this main church has happened. He says, you know, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, number two, and number one, you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. 
I think most of us are maybe familiar with the story of Balaam. You know, when Balaam was asked by King Balak the Moabite to pronounce a curse on the people of Israel, God forbade, forbade uh, Balaam from doing so. And uh, even even when he was about to do it anyway, you know, God sent an angel to block his way, and 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 that's where we read that Balaam, you know, got into a conversation with the donkey. And the Lord opened up the donkey's mouth and said, what have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? Because the donkey wasn't moving. Now, what's so amazing about this story was that, that, you know, not that the donkey spoke, but that Balaam answered the donkey. The talking to donkey, donkey was something they did every single day. Balaam says, I wish you there were a sword in my hand for now I would kill you. Well, after three failed attempts to curse Israel, Balaam resorted to another plan. Compromise. He told Balak, if, if, you know, your woman seduced the Israelite men, then they're going to introduce idol worship, you know, to them. And through that, Israel will bring a curse upon themselves. And the plan worked. And their compromise had devastating results. As a result of their compromise, God sent a plague into the camp of the Israelites that killed 24,000 of them. See, compromise from inside the camp had accomplished what no sword could have in conquering God's people. And when, when the, the plague was finally stopped, when the sword was unsheathed and Phineas entered a tent where an Israelite and Moabite woman were having sex and, and ran the sword through them. So what's the doctrine of Balaam that Jesus is speaking of here? It's Pergamos. It's the objectionable marriage with the world. Now, in many ways, the church has taken on the same personality as the world around us. You know, the divorce rate you know, within the church is hardly different at all than the secular world around us. The percentage of couples living together before marriage is telling you how we have allowed the world to become our role model. You know, you go to some of these church services and it's more, you know, secular music and, and, and worldly things that are being taught, not the Bible. We're commanded by God to love everyone, sinners included, but we're also commanded to call sin what it is, sin. And I think the majority of the pulpits in America are afraid to use words like sin. They're afraid to use words like repentance and salvation and hell and eternal death and adultery and homosexuality and many others. We have a people that, are, that have become afraid to take a stand against the things that God considers an abomination. Homosexuality, abortion, same-sex marriage. It's not popular to take a stand for righteousness in our society today, but if the church doesn't take a stand biblically accurate, stand on what is right or wrong, who's going to do it? It's the fault of the church that our society has become so corrupted. Evangelist Leonard Ravenhill once said, the world has lost the power to blush over its sin and the church has lost her power to weep over it. And it's all because we've fallen for the doctrine of Balaam. We have married with the world. And the danger of becoming married to the world is in fact that you're already married to Jesus Christ. That's a crude but common expression. We don't want to get into bed with the world or the cults of the devil. And we need to see our, our, our minor defections as spiritual adultery. James puts it this way, James 4.4, 4, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Listen, no one ever sets out to commit spiritual adultery, but one of the reasons you do is because you don't see it that way. It works the same way with physical adultery. It starts by letting your guard down or never putting one up. It then progresses, you know, by thinking that the thoughts are not as significant as your behavior. And spiritual adultery works the same way. We're married to Christ, but we have this adulterous relationship with the world. And before long, we're living life no different than those in the world. Listen, if Satan doesn't attack you as a roaring lion, he will attack you as a deceptive serpent. 
And Satan, Satan comes along and tempts you and gets you to think, oh, I can handle this little sin. Oh, it's no big deal, you know. It's not going to hurt anyone. A little drink, a little flirtation, a little peek at porn, a little taste of this, a little taste of that. But it's dangerous. You show me a person that has fallen away from the Lord. And let me tell you, it's always the little things that, 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 that turn into big things. It wasn't just overnight. Just all just he was gone. No, they, they, they lose control and then they say, well, I don't know how this happened to me. They thought they could handle it. They thought they were in control. Perfect example of this is Samson. I mean, well, he was known for his great strength. And we always think of him as this really buff type of dude, right? No, the Bible never says he was this big buff kind of dude. I mean, it says the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him and he would do these strong things. What if he was like this little scrawny guy, you know, with, with, with a, a pocket protector and extra tape on his glasses and, you know, hi, okay, I'm Samson, you know, something like that. He didn't have glasses back then, but we don't know what he looked like. But one thing we know, he had long hair. And that's because he had taken a Nazarite vow, you know, and that vow was, you know, set apart for God and you never cut your hair. So his, his power came from God that was symbolized by his vow in which he wore his long hair. Well, along comes the devil, his secret weapon, Delilah. Delilah. And uh, they couldn't take Samson down on the battlefield. They tried and failed. One, in fact, one time they, you know, they tried to kill him and he picked up uh, off the ground a jawbone of a donkey and killed up to, up to a thousand Philistines. Another time he picked up the gates of the city and carried them for miles. Good cardiovascular workout. You know, like, man, I've got the gates of the city. You know, I couldn't stop this guy. So the devil says, I gotta, I gotta do something different. I gotta change tactics. I can't beat him on the battlefield, but I think I can, I can get him in the bedroom. Because Samson was a he-man with a she-weakness. Okay, that's his problem. Enter Delilah, whose name, by the way, means delicate. And she comes along and says, Oh, Samson, you're so big and you're so strong. Tell me the secret of your strength that I may afflict you. You know, you're messed up when you're in a relationship like that with a woman. <laughs> Tell me how I can afflict you, you know, you know. Well, Samson kind of laughed it off. Afflict me, you delicate. I kill Philistines for fun, and I, I got to worry about you, really. Okay, come on. Okay, if you braid my hair up, I can't do anything. Really? So he falls asleep, and she braids up his hair and yells out, The Philistines are coming! The Philistines are coming! They burst into the room. Samson throws, throws them out the window, you know, just destroys them, you know, laughing it off. She goes back to Samson. Oh, you mocked me. You know, you make me angry, Samson Poo. Listen, tell me the secret of your strength so I may afflict you. And you've got to give credit to Delilah. I mean, she was up front with her intentions, wasn't she? And the amazing thing, he keeps playing the game. And he finally reveals, a razor's never touched my head. If you shave my head, I'll be like any other man. She goes, really? Great. He falls asleep in her lap, which is insane. And then he wakes up, guess what? His hair is gone. Philistines come in. This time he didn't throw them out like rag dolls. Instead, they gouged out his eyes. They tied them up to this mill and, and they ground the mill for the entertainment of the Philistines. He said, but wait a minute. Didn't, didn't Samson prevail in the end? Well, yeah, it cost him his life. I mean, he put his arms against those foundational pillars and pushed them aside and it, and it crushed him. They all died. But just think what would have happened if Samson would have simply obeyed God. How great his story would have been. But you see, he thought he could handle it. He took the bait of Delilah. Hook her line and sink her. It took you a minute, didn't it? <laughs> Hook, hooker, right, got it. 
So don't tell me you can handle these things. Don't tell me you're strong or you've known the Lord so many years and that you know I'll never go down. This is the devil's most most effective weapon tactic. It's compromise, and it comes in many different forms. Maybe things in the world start becoming more attractive to you than the Christian life. Maybe you decide there's more important things to do on on Sunday morning than come to church. Maybe you're more excited about the latest movie that's out than, than, than what you found from reading God's Word. Whatever it is, that old emptiness is returned because slowly but surely you've been compromising and going the wrong direction. It's time to turn around. The next thing that Jesus says that, that he hates is sin is, is the, the teaching of the, the Nicolaitans. Verse 15, you, have also, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, we, we looked at them briefly last time. They really, the Nicolaitans got a lot of attention in these letters. And if we understand anything from these letters, we know that, that what they taught and what they believed, God absolutely hated. Now, the word Nicolaitan means lord or rule over or conquer the people. And the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was to establish or promote a priesthood that is over the average person within the church. They claimed to have this special relationship with God and a special revelation from God. Understand, the New Testament teaches that every believer is a priest. There's no special class of men or women who are priests over others. When Jesus died on the cross, that veil was torn in the temple that separated man from God. It was torn in half so that anybody could come into the presence of, of, of God through Jesus Christ. We don't need the aid of a priest. Any sort of priesthood over uh, believers or between believers and, and God is contemptible. Now, not only did the Nicolaitans claim to be superior to other people, but they also had a perverted twist to it. They were involved in sexual immorality and they, they assaulted the church with all sorts of sexual temptations. It was said of them that they abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats leading a life of self-indulgence. See, their, their teaching perverted grace and replaced liberty with a license to sin. So the doctrine of Balaam was compromised and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was lording over people and sinning in the name of liberty. It's these doctrines that was corrupting the church. And the Lord hated it. You know, if the Lord hates something, I certainly want to hate the same things that he does. And he hates worldliness. Nothing corrupts a church greater than worldliness. Pergamos was a corrupted church or worldly church. And I think that for the most part, Christians, we're not seeing the big picture when it comes to worldliness. You know, I, I think that we as Christians look at worldliness as a bunch of do's and don'ts. You know, don't, don't watch TV, don't go to certain movies, don't smoke, don't chew, don't hang around with girls that do. You know, and, and we're very careful in, in avoiding those things that perceive you know, are signs of worldliness. But worldliness is much broader than that. Worldliness can be having a heart of hypocrisy. Worldliness can be, you know, having criticism of others all the time. It's, it's jealousy, it's bitterness, it's envy, it's wrath. It's preoccupation with the details of life rather than the eternal treasures. We live, folks, in a, in a selfish time in society, and it has taken a, a, a long for it to enter into the church. And the Lord wants us to be separate from the world. Not a, a condescending type of separation. Jesus told us we're to be in the world, but not of the world. You know, we're to be sought to make people thirsty for the things of God and light to point people to Christ. We're to be different in the sense of being holy, of not pursuing what the world is pursuing, not living by the mindset of the world and the world system uh, that says live to please self. 
Instead, instead we're to live to please God, to live with eternity in view. So we've seen the commendation, the criticism. Finally, this brings us to point number three, the correction. Look at verse 16 and 17. Jesus says, Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat and I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. What is the correction to the problem of compromise and worldliness? Jesus says, Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. It means to turn from what you are doing. Not just say, I'm sorry, but really change your heart, to change your attitude, to change your ways, to stop the direction you're going. Maybe this morning the Lord is speaking to your heart and He's dealing with things in your heart that, that are not major things, but they're little compromises. And you recognize that they're there. Understand that you understand they can eventually destroy you. And the Lord is saying, today is the day I want you to get rid of that. I want you to confess it to me as sin. And I want you to get, to get your heart right. That's what the Lord is asking us. And why does he ask us that? Because he wants to bless us. He wants to, to empower us. He wants to fill us with the Spirit. He wants to use each one of us to reach outside of these church walls into our community with the love of Jesus Christ. But we can only accomplish that if our walk matches our talk. That's why Jesus is saying to each one of us here, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then he closes with this challenge. And so will we. And we'll enter into a time of communion. Again, look at verse 17. He says, To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I'll give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. To him who refuses to compromise. Timmy refuses to let the influence of the world dominate them. Jesus says, I have a few special gifts for you. I'll give you this, some hidden manna to eat. Now, this is going to be cool. I've always wanted to know what manna was like. In fact, that's what the word manna means. What is it? Exodus tells us that uh, the, the children of Israel in the wilderness, they were running out of food, and you run out of food and supplies, you know, even in the most stable of households, it, it produces some murmuring and complaining when there's no food in the house. Well, the children of Israel complained to God, you know, did you bring us out to Egypt just to die? But when Moses prayed, God supplied. In the same way, when we pray, God will supply all we need to live in this world, but not of this world. Now, again, to be specific, what is the hidden manna? Well, there's a, there, in the, in the, in the, well, there was a, this place in the Ark of the Covenant that sat, that sat the ta- in the tabernacle, uh, eventually in the temple. Inside uh, the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments. It was Aaron's uh, rod that, that budded. And there's also a third item in there was this jar of manna. And it was to remember God's provision for them. Well, ancient Hebrew tradition has it that in 580 BC, when the, uh, 587 BC, when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem, the prophet Jeremiah went into the Holy of Holies and took that jar uh, out of the Ark when he was fleeing from the Babylonians. He went up to Mount Sinai and hid the manna in the cleft of the rock. And that was known as the hidden manna. So the Jews believed that when Messiah came, he would bring with him the jar of hidden manna. See, the Lord is promising the one who overcomes the, the hidden manna. This could be all the blessings of the Messiah in the kingdom. So Jesus is saying, if you're willing to abstain and refrain from the seductions of this world, you will enjoy blessings and reward in the kingdom. And then he says, the white stone. That was something different, something cultural. You know, in the ancients, they had court different than we have court today. Trial juries had, you know, 
had guilt or innocence by a white stone or a black stone. Black was guilty, white was innocent. The white stone was, was acquittal, was innocence of acceptance. And so for us, the white stone is acquittal of innocence because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. The word says, though our skins were, sins were scarlet, he has made them as white as snow. And then he says uh, that the stone were given a new name which no one knows except him who receives it. I mean, this is like a, a personal message from the Lord to, to, to the one he loves, to the one who overcomes. He said, as we enter into eternity, we'll be given a new name as well. So if you've not been happy with your name that your parents gave you, you've hated it all your life, Jesus is going to fix that for you. And listen, as we close, all this is based on what Jesus says here. He says, to him who overcomes, I will give. But the only way to overcome is through the blood of the Lamb. We, in and of ourselves, we're not overcomers. We're not. The only way we can overcome sin and death and compromise in worldliness is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. As we know the victory is won by Christ through the cross, no other name given among men by which we can be saved is only through Jesus. It's all about Jesus. That's the cure to compromise. That our focus is on Him and on His Word. And as we enter into this time of communion, I think it's really a great time to open our hearts and our lives before Him. And they ask us to show us, is there areas of compromise in our lives that, that, that we need to deal with? The warning is there. We need to deal with it. You know, the sin of Pergamon was it's a toleration of evil, a sort of have your cake and eat it too philosophy. It's the idea of sinning to your heart's content, telling yourself, well, God's going to understand. Listen, that's no way to live. God is calling us to repent. And so as we enter into this time of communion as believers, let's, let's ask the Lord to, to examine our hearts and show us if there's anything in there that we need to deal with. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, and to be in this place of going back to the cross and what the cross symbolizes. Lord, your death upon that cross paid for every sin we've ever committed. Every uh, thing that that that, that displease you, Lord, breaking your laws, your commandments. Lord, we've all done it. And you've forgiven us and you've washed us clean. But maybe, Lord, over the years that we've been walking with you as we've committed our life to you, we've allowed compromise to come into our lives. We've allowed things to come in that we never would have allowed when we first gave our lives to you, whenever that was. And so, Lord, we would want you to show us this morning as we examine our hearts and look to the cross. Lord, is there anything in our life that we need to confess to you? A sign of compromise, Lord. Lord, not only confess it, but as your word says, we need to repent. That means we need to stop the direction that we're going and turn and go the other way. Lord, by the power of your spirit, help us to do that. Show us this morning. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.